Amen. Um, well, you know, I keep on forgetting. I should have announced it this morning and earlier today, but um, I put on Facebook this week uh, that we would have a, a very, very brief uh, business meeting tonight to to elect messengers to this Georgia Baptist Convention. I don't know if anyone besides you, besides me is interested in going to the Georgia Baptist Convention, but if you'd like to represent our church uh, and vote, we there actually, I don't know if... if I mean, I don't know how many of y'all keep up with it, but uh, normally the way it works is um, the uh, the person who's elected president, um, it's pretty much a given that if they go one term, they'll go another term. Uh, but Mike Stone this year, who is um, is Emanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, is that right? He, because of some uh, responsibilities that he has, um, and for the sake of his time and his ministry, he is elected not to go the typical second term this time, so there actually will be a, a, a presidential election uh, this year as well, so um, if so, if you'd like to go, um, you can make that known uh, a little bit later this evening. Uh, but as we begin, we're going to continue our series uh, on um, Bible interpretation, and uh, I came across uh, this thing I want to read to y'all, I'm going to, after I read it to you, I'm going to ask you a question about it, okay? This is what it says. U.S., A prominent manufacturer of pews and chairs for Christian churches has announced a new series of electrified pews and seats designed to encourage the congregation to stand in unison at the appropriate time. No matter if congregants are being asked to stand for prayer, uh, uh, the reading of the word, a worship song, or a standing ovation, technicians can now pull a lever and send up to 80,000 volts coursing through the seats. We expect this to be a big hit with the Catholics, a representative said Monday. Any church that is constantly asking congregants to stand and then sit back down again ad nauseum will find the added functionality extremely helpful. Churches can now gently encourage members to stand with a modest, potentially deadly jolt of electricity, he added. The company had found that many churches were having trouble getting everyone to stand at the same time with a few curmudgeonly troublemakers even refusing to stand for any of the two dozen times churches were asking them to stand throughout the service. At publishing time, the successful launch of the new electrified seats had prompted the manufacturer to announce the new electrified pulpit to encourage guest speakers to wrap it up once they've gone over their time limit. Okay, so let me ask you a question about that. What, what genre of writing is that? You want to take a guess? What? Humor? Yeah, okay. Okay. Any other guesses? Satire. Yeah, which is, which is humorous, biting, if you are, sarcastic type of writing. That was from the Babylon Bee. If you haven't discovered the Babylon Bee, you should check them out. But today we're going to talk about uh, narrative prophecies and figures of speech. And what these are, of course, is these are uh, genres. And so the point that I want to get at is how we, how we read something and what we understand the genre of something to be is going to greatly affect how we read it, you know? Uh, <laughs> on the Internet today, you read all kinds of things, and there is probably some person somewhere out there who would read that article and think, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they invented that. <laughs> but... When you pick up the clues and understand that it's satire, you understand that it's a joke and it's not true. But you understand that understanding the genre of something is greatly going to affect then how you interpret it. 
So we're going to talk about several questions tonight relating to genre. And so the first thing is this. Uh, how do we identify genre and why does it matter? The fact is, is that most of us who read anything, um, it comes rather intuitively to us uh, that something's a particular genre. For example, if I was going to tell you a story, particularly if I sat your, you know, your small children down and was going to tell them a story, and I began my story by saying, once upon a time, immediately, when the second you hear those words, you intuitively know he's going to tell a fairy tale, right? You intuitively know that. And that's going to affect the way you interpret the rest of the story. You know that I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm probably not telling you something that's true, something that really happened. It's a fairy tale. And those words, once upon a time, clue you into that. Okay? Um, now we live in a day of, of so-called fake news. And the Babylon Bee and, and, and other websites, in fact, there are many websites out there that are designed to look exactly like a legitimate news website. And then if you scroll all the way down to the bottom, it says, basically, everything on here is fake, right? But people oftentimes don't know that. They'll share an article on Facebook that, was, that they, they are outraged over that, in fact, was a joke, okay? So we have to learn to um, discern genre and to understand it so that we can un- uh, understand it uh, correctly. Um, so how do we identify genre? Well... Uh, the first thing is to, is to read it and look for clues, okay? When you hear something that's totally outrageous, like electrified pews, okay, you should intuitively think, okay, that's probably not true. And when it, and when it makes fun of some kind of stereotype like that, you, you begin to, to understand that it's probably satire. So you have to read the, read the piece and, and look for clues in it that can point us to the kind of genre that it is, from the writing style uh, to, to everything about it. And then the second way, the, and the, the most helpful thing, is to simply, we have to familiarize ourselves with the biblical genre. We have to familiarize ourselves with it. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis was um, you know, a former atheist. He became a Christian. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, a brilliant man, and his... I mean, he was an expert in, uh, in literature, in ancient literature. And people would sometimes say things like, well, the Bible's a myth, the Bible's a legend. And C.S. Lewis um, one time said something like this. He's, he said, I've read myths and legends. This is not one. <laughs> in other words, when you read a type of writing enough, you become familiar with it. You become familiar with the, the pointers in it that tell you what type of genre it is. And it gives you a taste, a flavor for what it's like so that when you read something else, you'll be able to discern whether or not it's a particular type of genre. And so we must familiarize ourselves with the type of biblical genres. And we're going to talk about several genre, genres this week and next week. Next thing I want to talk about is the dangers in mishandling biblical genres. There are dangers in mishandling biblical genres. The first one is this. It's skewed interpretation. If you, don't, if you get the genre wrong, or if you misunderstand it, or you don't apply uh, uh, genre in your interpretive method, what's going to happen is you're, you're going to come up with wrong interpretations. Uh, the example that I've shared before... Uh, is the example of Jephthah in the book of Judges who sacrifices his daughter after the battle. If we don't, if we don't apply the genre of narrative correctly 
it may be tempting to think that, okay, Jeph- Jephthah's a judge. He just won this victory for the Lord, and then he keeps his vow to sacrifice his daughter. We, it could be confusing and tempting to think, well, what, Joseph, what Jephthah did was right. But actually, the story makes no comment on whether keeping the vow was right or wrong. In fact, the author assumes that you would know whether it's right or wrong. And when you, again, when you look in Leviticus in the law of Moses, Moses said that if you make a rash vow, not to keep it. And you could offer a sacrifice for your sin instead of keeping your rash vow that you shouldn't have made. And so, and so uh, understanding genre will help us to correctly understand these texts and not to uh, misinterpret them. The second danger in biblical genre is that we can deny the text. Uh, truthfulness. And some people have done this before. For example, some people, and it can be tempting to do this sometimes, will intentionally mislabel a genre so that to, to achieve certain purposes. And the example that I gave with C.S. Lewis is, for example, the genre of myth or of legend. So, for example, some people will label uh, the flood or Jonah getting eaten by the well. They will label that as myth. Now, why would someone want to do that? Because it seems too outlandish to them to believe that such things could have actually happened, right? Our, our modern, enlightened day that we believe in, we just can't believe in men getting eaten by fish, okay? We can't believe in it. And so, but here's what they don't want to do. But what you don't want to do is also come and outright say the Bible is a lie. The Bible's wrong. So what can you do to get around that whole problem? You can say, oh, well, it's a myth. When they wrote it, they didn't really believe it either. They were just telling a story to make a nice little point for our kids. You see what I'm saying? You can, you can mislabel a genre in order, to, in order to actually deny the truthfulness of the text. And so you can, you can use this technique of understanding genre actually to misinterpret the Bible and to actually basically lie about the text because you don't want to affirm what the text plainly says, so you'll mislabel it to kind of get you off the hook, as it were, for not taking the text at face value. And so that, it's also important why we must get the genre correct. And the final uh, danger in, the, uh, in, um, in mishandling genre is using it to excuse oneself from the demands of Scripture. And it's, it's similar to the previous one. But we can use it to demand oneself uh, from the de- uh, excuse oneself from the demands of Scripture. Just to give an example. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, Jesus says, Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay? Simple enough. Well... What kind of statement is that? Well, we would say that that is a proverbic type statement. Okay, that, that, that would be accurate. It's a proverbic type statement. It's a general truth that Jesus is teaching. We should be quick to be generous people. Okay, quite clear. Now, be, being a proverbic type statement, I would say that what Jesus is saying is not absolute. And that is... If a suicidal person comes and says, hey, I want to borrow your gun, I don't think Jesus wants you to let him borrow it. And I don't think you could say, well, Jesus said, give to the one who asked from you. I don't, you know, that's a misinterpretation. 
That's not what Jesus intended, right? So in other words, it's not an absolute statement. It is a proverbic statement. Nevertheless, here's the thing. We can understand that correctly and then say it's a proverbic statement, but then say it's a proverbic statement in order to excuse myself from all the demands of that text. I don't have to give to that person because Jesus didn't mean it absolutely. I don't have to be generous because Jesus, you know, there are exceptions. You see what I'm saying? We can use the general understanding of it's a proverbic statement to actually, ex- to actually reduce the actual force, though, of what Jesus really was trying to say. And that is that we should be very generous people and, and quick to help those in need. Okay, so just things to keep in mind when we think about genre. And so next we're going to look specifically at a few different types of genre. And then next week, which will be our, uh, our final week in this series, we'll talk about um, uh, s- some remaining genres. But the first genre we're going to look at is this, historical narratives. How do we interpret historical narratives? So, you've read the Bible? Somebody take a guess. How much of the Bible is narrative? How much of it is story? Somebody take a guess. Just throw out a number. 65. Any other guesses? A third, 33%. Anybody else? You're close, you're close, Joseph. 60%. 60% of the Bible is historical narrative. So we need to understand this correctly. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, the Gospel, the Gospels, all four Gospels and Acts are all historical narratives. And so we have to understand to, uh, to know how to interpret these correctly. And, and also the thing about narratives, too, is narratives are often interspersed with other types of genres as well, such as genealogies, proverbs, psalms, letters, etc. Okay? When reading a narrative, we have to look for clues to understand how the author intends to be understood. Because think about it. A narrative is telling a story. When someone, tells, when someone tells you a story, they always have a purpose in mind, right? They want to try to make you laugh. They want to try to make a point. They want to try to, you know, th- there's a point that's always being made. When you tell a story to somebody, you're not just, you're not just uh, saying it without any purpose, you have, a, you have a point that you're trying to make, and the point that you're trying to make affects the way you tell the story. So, for example, many people read the Gospels, and the, we, we have lots of questions. You know, why didn't, why didn't this happen? Why didn't this happen? Where, where is that? Where is that? There's a lot of details that's not included in the stories that we wish were there. But think about it. When you tell a story, do you, how much detail do you give? Well, it depends, right? It depends who you're talking to. It depends how much they know about the situation. It depends what the story is, what the point is you're trying to make with the story, right? And so we can't demand more of the stories than the author was, the authors was trying to give us. They had a point and a purpose in writing these stories. And so in interpreting them correctly, we have to understand what they intended to do. And so to just give one example, in Mark 2.23, Mark says this, One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields. Okay? There's actually a lot from that one little line that you can learn about, about Mark. And, and, and this is important to think about, and some people don't think about this. 
Notice how Mark, Mark intentionally says, he says, one Sabbath. He doesn't, he doesn't say, in the next Sabbath, okay? He says, one Sabbath. What does that mean? He's, talking, he's just telling a, re- a story that happened. What does that mean? Well, it means this. If you read Mark carefully, what you'll see is that Mark isn't necessarily in chronological order. And so that confuses some people sometimes. And some people, can, and some people confuse the, the Gospels because they don't share all the, all the stories in the same order. And that's true. But that's because some, the author, for the authors, some of the points that they were trying to make, they didn't feel the necessity to write everything in historical order. Because when you tell a story, sometimes you tell one part next to another part, even though they didn't happen at the same time, in order to make a point. Right? And so we, and so we have to think carefully as we're reading the stories to see what the author is getting at. So next, I want to look at some guidelines for interpreting narrative. Guidelines for interpreting narrative. The first is the descriptive versus, versus prescriptive. We talked about this before. In narratives, when you read an account in a narrative, you have to discern whether the author is trying to be merely descriptive or trying to be prescriptive. Are they merely saying what happened, or are they trying to actually give me an example to follow? Okay? And just in the same story, uh, like the story of Jephthah, another example of that is somebody one time, based off of Luke 2.7, in Luke 2.7 it says that Mary placed Jesus in a manger, and, and somebody one time said, well, see, Jesus, uh, Mary put Jesus in a manger, so we have to put our children in cribs. <laughs> Maybe, probably not, <laughs> right? It's just, the, he, she's just telling what happened. And in fact, in Luke... It probably has to do with showing Jesus' lowly human stature. That's probably what Luke was trying to convey. Not, not trying to make the point that since Jesus was put in a manger, you have to put your kids in cribs. Okay? So we have to discern descriptive versus prescriptive. Number two, the purpose of the author. This is the key question. Why did the, why did the author uh, write this? Why did he put it uh, in the story? And so, for example, like, when we read the Gospels, for example, we have to remember that all the Gospels were written for what purpose? For the reader to believe in Jesus, right? And so that's going to affect their purpose. Um, one example is, uh, again, in the, the Gospel of Mark, there's the story about the Gerasene demoniac. Why did Mark put that story in his Gospel? Well, if you read the story of the Gerasene demoniac and you look at the context, what you see is that it's in a string of story, It's in a string of stories about Jesus's power over nature, over de- demons, over disease, over death, and it's just one story in a string of stories. What's Mark trying to convey? That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is in control. That He is Lord over nature, over demons, over disease, over death. Right? So when you read the context, you see what Mark is trying to communicate through the narrative. Mark doesn't come out and say that, but when you read it, you, you begin to discern his purpose. And that brings us to the next one in interpreting narrative, and that is, and that is context. Context, again, is the most important part of interpretation, and that's true, that's true of everything. You hear on the news all the time, someone quotes someone else, and they'll say, well, no, they took that statement out of context, 
Okay, context is important. If it when we, if you watched a movie, if you started a movie, but you started it with thirty minutes left in it, chances are you would be lost on a lot of things. Chances are you may get some of what's going on, but the worst case scenario is you would think you understand what's going on. But then you go back and watch the whole movie and you were totally wrong, right? Sometimes you can watch some things and feel like you have an understanding of what's going on. But then when you get the full story, you realize you were totally wrong. Megan and I watched a movie the other day that had a huge plot twist at the end. And then you're like, what? And you go back and watch the movie and you're like, oh my gosh, it was there the whole time and you couldn't see it, right? There are things that are there that we have to look at the context carefully enough to see them, and if we don't under, if we don't look at the context carefully enough, we'll miss what's actually going on. Second thing to understand in narratives, or to help us in narratives, is editorial comments. So when you have those, uh, it's very nice because then you don't have to wonder. The author is actually telling you what they are thinking. For example, in Mark, Mark relays the story about how Jesus says. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you, but it's what comes out of you that defiles you. And then Mark makes a little comment. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Well, praise the Lord, because we can have bacon for breakfast, right? Well, Mark tells you what he means, and sometimes the authors will do that. Many times they don't. Many times they just let it stand and leave it up to you to discern what they're saying. But sometimes the authors will give you a clear editorial comment about what they're trying to say. Uh, The next uh, important uh, concept in narratives is thematic statements. Sometimes, sometimes, especially at the beginning of books, of course, there will be a thematic statement that will clue you in to what the author wants to say in the, in the, rest, in the rest of the book. A, a great example of this is the book of Acts. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. What happens in the book of Acts? They proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And it goes to Paul who takes it all the way to the, to as far as, to the whole Roman Empire. Right? So Acts 1.8, according to Luke, is a thematic statement. He is cluing us in at the very beginning what he's going to tell us about about how what Jesus commanded the disciples to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, they did, right? So it's a thematic statement that helps us understand the entire book of Acts. Okay, the next thing to help us in understanding narrative is repetition. Is repetition. The, the, I've mentioned this before. The oldest manuscripts, specifically Greek manuscripts, were all were written... In all capital letters, no punctuation marks, no spaces. Okay, imagine trying to read that. All capital letters, no punctuation marks, no spaces between the words, right? You could have a word that, you could have a line that has the first letter of a word, and then the word continues on the other line with no marking to indicate that, no dash, no nothing. It's hard to read, okay? They don't, there's no underlining, there's no italics, there's no periods, commas, question marks, exclamation points. So, so if the author of the text wanted to emphasize something to the reader, how would he do it? He'd repeat it because he had no other tools to use, right? 
So he'd repeat it. And so if you see something in a story that is repeated a lot, you need to take note and say, okay, the author's trying to tell me something. For example, for example, the book of Matthew, for example, oftentimes Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. All the time he's talking about the kingdom of God. So it's clear then that one of Matthew's main goals is, is for us to understand what the kingdom of God is by repetition. Okay? <clears throat> and the final clue that we have to help us in interpreting narrative is trustworthy characters. And so this is one of the little, little more obvious ones. If there's a character in the story that's obviously depicted as trustworthy, then generally what they say is prescriptive and not just descriptive. So, for example, in all the Gospels, when Jesus says something, you're not wondering, hmm, I wonder if I should believe that, right? But when, the de- when a demon says something, you, you, you say, hmm, I don't know, right? And so there's clues in the story. When Jesus, or when an angel comes and says something, you generally are going to say, okay, that's true. But if just some bystander in the story is, is, it says something in the story, you don't necessarily believe it. And so trustworthy characters is another way to help us interpret narratives. And so, um, Lord willing, I think one of the next things I'd like to do um, is, to, is to preach through a gospel. And so, um, uh, we'll get to experience some of that. Uh, so, looking forward to that. The next, the next genre we want to look at is this, and that is prophecy. That is prophecy. Everybody, everybody reading the, the daily reading, we're in the book of Isaiah, uh, just finished up the book of Isaiah, you understood everything in there. It's confusing, right? It's confusing. So the first thing to understand prophecy is we have to understand what is a prophet. When I tell you, when I ask you, what's a prophet? What, what, what do you think? What would you, what would you say? What's a prophet? What's a prophet? How would you explain it to somebody? Okay, very good. Any, any other thoughts? What's a prophet? If you ask someone on the street and you said, what's a prophet, what would they tell you? Tells the future, right? Right? That's right. Someone on, someone, someone on the street corner holding up a sign saying the world's about to end, right? Prophet. Well, you're right, Miss Kathy. In, in the Bible, of course, a prophet is much more than a doomsday preacher and actually... Uh, and you're, you're right, most people would say that, but a prophet is actually much more also than just a, um, a, a, a foreteller of the, the future. And in biblical prophecy, a prophet, more often than not, is just someone who, I mean, generally speaking, they're just someone who speaks God's words. All right? That's basically all the prophet is. And in the Old Testament especially, what the, usually, most of the time, the main role of a prophet was to call the people of Israel back to repentance. And so although they did foretell the future at times, one of their main goals in foretelling the, the future of what would happen is so that the people they're talking to today would repent and believe and turn back to God from their idolatry. And so a prophet is a much more general word of someone who simply communicates uh, a message from God. Now, when you read the New Testament, um, the, the, the New Testament implies that basically every, 
every person who wrote scripture in the Old Testament was a prophet. It pretty much lumped those everyone into that to that category. Um, and so, and so to understand the prophets, we need to here here's here's some tips here to understand the prophets. The first the first tip is this. Investigate the book's background, date, and author. Investigate the book's background, date, and author. So remember, the prophets are speaking to a specific point in a specific time. If you know, if we record our message, our messages here, and I, I'm not I'm not saying I'm a prophet. <laughs> I preach God's word, but I'm not a prophet. You know, a thousand years from now, the Lord doesn't come back. Somebody comes across. Uh, you know, uh, a USB, and it has one of my sermons on it. And they listen to one of my sermons. And they say, what in the world is that guy talking about? Right? Because I might be talking about, the ele- you know, something about the election. And they'll have to go back to understand what's going on. They'll have to do some research and figure out who I was and what was the context in which I was speaking to to understand what I was saying. It's the same thing when we try to understand prophets. These were prophets and they were called by God at certain times in Israel's history to speak into the life of that, that nation at that time to call, to call them to repentance. And so the, one of the most helpful things you can do when you're reading a, a, a book, of, of, of a prophetic book like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah is, you know, get a good study Bible. And at the beginning of each book, it'll have a few pages that tell you about the background of that book. Read, just read that, and it'll give you a huge insight into how to understand uh, that, that book. The second thing, of course, is recurring theme here. Pay attention to uh, the context. Pay attention to the context of what's going on. Try to follow what's happening. Prophetic books can be very difficult to interpret because there's, they just jump from one thing to another. And to try to help you with that, most of your Bible translations have it already broken down for you in paragraphs with section headings, right? Those section headings are not divinely inspired, okay? Your translators put them in there. But your translators are generally Bible experts who more or less want to help you, okay? So you can, you can, you can trust those divisions and, and those, those, those section headings for the most part to help you understand what's going on. The, uh, the next thing about interpreting prophecy is to ex- expect figurative language. Remember, these prophets often use figurative, poetic, e- very emotive language to try to call the people of Israel back to repentance. Oftentimes, their language would contain hyperbole and analogies and other types of figures of speech in order to really affect the emotions of their hearers with the desire to have them repent and turn back to God because they were rebelling against God in idolatry. Let me just give you an example from Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah says this, he says, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. What is Isaiah doing? He's describing the nation of Israel as what? A sick person, right? Israel is not literally a sick person. It's an analogy. It's a metaphor. He's using this powerful language to say 
that Israel in its idolatry is like a diseased person who doesn't, who is not seeking healing, right? It's powerful emotive language. Um, uh, another example in that same chapter, Isaiah 1 verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands, he's speaking for God, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Well, are their hands literally full of blood? Does God even have eyes? No, it's, it's descriptive language. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's figures of speech used to carry a powerful message. So we should expect that when we read uh, prophecy. The next tip here is to distinguish conditional from unconditional prophecy. Some of the prophecy in the Bible was conditional. For example, Jonah goes into Nineveh and what does he say? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But what happens? They repent. What doesn't happen? It's not overthrown. Was Jonah wrong? No. Implicit in the prophecy, implicit, it wasn't explicit, but implicit in the prophecy was that if they repented, it wouldn't happen. Right? And so we have to distinguish between that because some people will use that and say, well, see, look, it's a false prophecy in the Bible. But no. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 18, you could read that sometime, verse 7 and, and through 10, God explicitly states about how if, if a prophet prophesies but they repent, God will relent. And if they repent but then they turn back, then God will bring the judgment. So it explicitly says that in Jeremiah 18. Next tip is this. We have to try to understand the meaning intended for the original uh, hearers. Seek the meaning intended for the original hearers. And so just like if someone was listening to one of my sermons uh, a thousand years from now, they would need to go back and say, how would one of these people in this pulpit understand, uh, understand him? What, 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 how would they understand what he was trying to communicate? We have to try to put ourselves in their shoes hearing Isaiah or Jonah, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel preached to us, how would we hear it with our worldview and our mindset? So we have to kind of put ourselves in the, in the, in the ancient Jewish mindset to understand what they were saying. Uh, the next, uh, next uh, rule here is to determine whether the prophetic prediction is fulfilled or unfulfilled. <clears throat> this is not always easy to do. It's not always easy to do, but it's going to, it's going to help us in understanding in understanding it, when a, when, a, when a prediction is made, we have to ask ourselves, has that already been fulfilled? Because what's that going to do? If it's already been fulfilled, then more often than not, we won't be looking for a future fulfillment, right? But if it hasn't been fulfilled, then what does that mean? It means we're still waiting for it to happen, right? So whether you, your determination of whether it's fulfilled or unfulfilled is going to affect the way you interpret it. And how, we, and how we understand it to be. And of course, it's, it's a little more problem. It's, it's not always black and white um, because of what we talked about and what we'll talk about in just a moment about typology. So when Isaiah said unto you, uh, or, uh, when, when Isaiah says uh, a woman, a virgin will be with child, if you read the context in Isaiah, he's clearly talking about a child that's going to be born in his day, right? But then Clearly, later, that same prophecy is used as a prophecy of the birth of Jesus, right? And so it's not, it's not always perfectly clear, but we have to try to discern whether the prophecy is fulfilled or unfulfilled. Uh, the next thing, uh, number seven here, is to note the apologetic value of, of prophecy. This is important here. 
God in multiple places in the Bible, if you've been reading along with us in the Bible reading in the book of Isaiah, numerous times God says that what makes him the true God is that he can tell the future, right? And so all the times he's telling through his prophets, he says, what makes, it, what makes God different from idols is that he is actually in control. When God actually says something and it comes to pass, you know God has done it because he alone is God. He alone has control of the future. And so, and so, and so that alone makes him uh, God. And we should note the apologetic value of this because, because it is a, it is a, it's a great uh, argument in favor of Christianity and, and, and a, a good part of our defense of our faith uh, the fact that the Old Testament makes prophecies that were explicitly fulfilled. And uh, th- th- there's, there's th- the, the number of them is, is vast. And we're going to talk about, um, uh, or just one example is, is the book of uh, Daniel. Maybe you, you've read the book of Daniel. You know, it's all cool till you get about halfway through, and then he starts talking about beasts with horns and all kinds of crazy stuff, right? And you're like, what in the world is he talking about? But then it's clear that he start, he's talking about kingdoms and things that, that will happen. Well, here's the thing about the book of Daniel. When you, when you follow the history, Daniel is prophesying about the intertestamental period. Alexander the Great's kingdom broke up and was divided under under several different kings who warred against each other and, and conquered each other for a certain period of time, and then a certain one of those one of those uh, kings of the remnants of the of the Greek um, Empire came and and just conquered Jerusalem and set up uh, an altar to a false god in Jerusalem and, and sacrificed a pig on the altar, the abomination of desolation. Daniel's prophecies were so accurate about what happened in the history in the intertestamental period that lots of liberal scholars say that it had to have been written after the fact because of how precise it details the various warring kingdoms and how that whole history played out. All right? it's, it's incredible. Of course, we know that it was written when Daniel wrote it, during the time of Daniel, hundreds of years, uh, or yeah, about 100, 100 years prior. And so... And so that tells us that what? The God of Daniel is God, the God of the future, who knows the future and told Daniel ahead of time what was going to uh, happen. Okay. Um, next. What's number next there? Old Testament versus New Testament prophecy. That's heavily debated. It, we are running out of time. There's no way I'm going to get through all this. So I'm going to fly, okay? I'm going to fly. Number four, number four, how do we interpret prophecy uh, typology? How do we interpret prophecy typology? Re- very briefly, um, there's a couple of things we have to understand when un- uh, assumptions that Jews would have when we read uh, prophecy. The, number, the first assumption is this, corporate solidarity. The Jews had no problem with one representing the many and the many representing one. If you've read the book of Isaiah, you'll see that oftentimes the Isaiah talks about someone called the servant. God's servant, the suffering servant, right? The servant, and oftentimes that servant is referred to as an individual, but at the same time, that individual represents the whole nation of, 
of uh, Israel. So when you read the book of Matthew, for example, and you see how Matthew describes Jesus' life, the, the king was trying to murder all the males, right? Jesus goes down into Egypt and there's what? Comes back up. At Jesus' baptism, uh, after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness for what? 40 days. He wanders in the, like Israel did for what? 40 years in the wilderness. What is Matthew trying to say? That Jesus is, is Israel. Jesus is representing Israel and fulfilling what Israel was supposed to be, God's faithful son, right? And so, and so um, that, that concept of corporate solidarity, the, one, the many being represented by the one, is, is a little bit foreign to us who live in a more individualistic society. But for the Jews, that would be no problem. Yeah, the king represents the entire nation, right? That's no problem for them. And so some of the passages have to be read like that. Uh, number two, they assumed earlier events would foreshadow later ones. Uh, number three, Jesus and the apostles understood that they were in the days of fulfillment. Jesus, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He understood that his days were the last days, that he was bringing in the fulfillment of all the Old Testament and ushering in the new age. The age in which we, we, we now live. Of course, it's lasted a lot longer than most people thought it would. But we are in the end days. We've been in the end days for the past 2,000 years because the time of fulfillment has come. And now it's just awaiting its consummation. All right? Number four, the New Testament authors believed all the scriptures were about Christ. We talked about that. And number five, fulfillment is a broader term uh, than our typical usage. And all that means is that when the New Testament says a, a passage was fulfilled, it doesn't, they use fulfilled in a broader way than we do. When we say fulfilled, we say, okay, he prophesied this was happened, and then boom, that exactly happened. But the New Testament uses the word fulfilled in a broader way. It, you know, um, for example, uh, one of the prophets says, out of Egypt I called my son. And when you read that prophecy, it's talking about Israel, the nation of Israel. But then in the New Testament, they apply that prophecy to Jesus when he came up out of Egypt after Herod tried to kill him. Well, Jesus, they used the word fulfillment in a little bit looser way than we use it. He, when they say fulfilled, it means that he, 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 he fulfilled that picture that Israel was supposed to be, if that makes sense. Okay, number five. Briefly here, and so I hate to shortchange you on this, but how do we interpret apocalyptic literature? Apocalyptic literature. What's apocalyptic literature? Revelation, beasts coming out the, the ground, they got horns, they got lots of eyes everywhere, they're destroying everything. That's apocalyptic literature, okay? Everyone wants to understand it, it's very confusing. There's really only two books in the Bible that contain this genre. What are they? Revelation and Daniel. That's right. Um, Revelation and Daniel. Um, we talked about Daniel a little bit already. Um, <clears throat> The book of Revelation, uh, there's several different views on how to interpret the book of Revelation. And then, um, I, don't, I can't even go into it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just way too much. Uh, but I will tell you this, and this is very fascinating. There's a, there's a, the first view there is the preterist view, and maybe some of you haven't heard of it, but there are some people who are preterists who believe that everything that happened in Revelation is already fulfilled, already happened, that that all of it was all the destruction it was talking about had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem, 
that was already fulfilled. That's interesting. There's lots of views out there about the book of Revelation. We won't, we won't talk about all of them here. Uh, next, we're going to talk about how to interpret exaggerated or hyperbolic language. We, we talked about this some, so I can be brief here. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. I don't think Jesus is teaching us to gouge out our eyes. He's using hyperbole for us to see how serious uh, sin uh, is. Uh, how can we recognize exaggeration when you see it? How do you know when something is an exaggeration? Well, there's a few keys here. If it's literally impossible, it's an exaggeration. Camels can't go through the eye of a needle, okay? It's exaggeration, all right? Um, if it's not literally fulfilled, it was probably an exaggeration. Jesus said about the temple in Jerusalem that not a single stone would be left standing upon another, right? Well, if you go to Jerusalem, there's still some stones, foundation stones that are on top of each other. Was Jesus wrong? No. Not one stone will be left upon another is what? It's a hyperbolic way to say it's going to be utterly destroyed. And it was. It was utterly destroyed. But the simple fact that, that there's still some stones left on top of each other does not mean Jesus was wrong. He was exaggerating. He was using hyperbole to, to show the total destruction of uh, Jerusalem. Okay. And the final thing I want to talk about is how do we interpret uh, figures of uh, speech? And, um, and there's a lot of them here. Uh, we'll just be very, very brief. But we know what a figure of speech is. If I tell you to hit the lights, I'm not telling you to take your fist and punch a light bulb, right? I'm telling you to turn off the lights, right? If I say, if I say you know, I quit something cold turkey, you know, and you're talking to someone from overseas, they'll say, cold turkey, what in the world are you talking about? But we know what that means, right? It means you just stopped all of a sudden. If I say something's a piece of cake, if you're not from America, you'll say a piece of cake. What does it have to do with anything, right? It's a figure of speech. Well, guess what? Every language has figures of speech. And so we have to understand these to interpret the Bible correctly. Some figures of speech include metaphor and simile. You guys know what they are. It's just, he, if I say so-and-so is a lion, I don't mean they're literally a lion. That's a metaphor. They're brave. They're bold. They're courageous. They're vicious. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, simile, just use the words like or as, he's like a lion. A merism is two, two words that stand for a totality of something. Heavens and earth, when the Bible says heaven and earth, it usually means, it usually means the universe, right? It's not intending to mean two different spheres per se, but it's a, mer, it's a merism. It's two things that are meant to represent uh, uh, the totality of something. Heaven and earth just simply means the universe. A hendiadis um, is using two words to say the same thing. Uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Life and immortality is a hendiadis. It's two words, but it's really just, he's really just communicating one idea. Um, a synecdoche is where parts represent the whole. All hands on deck. I'm not telling you, cut off your hands and throw them on deck, right? Your hands represent what? You, your whole body. All hands on deck is a synecdoche. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Did Paul just love feet? No, it's a synecdoche. The feet represent, some people love feet. Their feet are gross, okay? Um, synecdoche, all right? He loves the feet of those who preach the good news, all right? Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Should we only pray for bread? No, synecdoche, bread means food, right? A part, a part represents the whole. Um, 
I don't even know if I'm pronouncing these words right. Metonymy is one word in which uh, one word stands in for another word that's closely associated with it. The White House vetoed the bill. Did the White House veto the bill? No, the president did, but the White House represents the president. We know what that means. That's metonymy. Personification. Personification is when um, you, um, you, you give something that's not a person a personality. Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Your hand can't know anything, okay? But we know what it means, right? He's personifying your, your hands. Anthropomorphism, giving uh, personal features to something that doesn't have it. The eyes of the Lord. The Lord doesn't have eyes, but he can see everything, right? It's, pers- it's personification. Last one, uh, next last one is uh, lightities, um, making, an, uh, making an assertion by denying the opposite. Luke does this all the time. He says, uh, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. No small dissension. What does that mean? They had a big fight, right? You, 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 you make an assertion by denying the opposite. Rather than saying they had a big fight, he said they had no small dissension. That's called lightities. And finally, um, idioms. <clears throat> Idioms. We all, we all have idioms, um, just si- ways that we uh, say things that aren't necess- uh, that we just, we, as a colloquial way of saying things. For example, oftentimes in the Bible, if you, if you read the original language, it'll say, it'll say, so-and-so answered and said, so-and-so answered and said, so-and-so answered and said. That, that was the way that they said that. But in your English translations, your translators just say, said. Right, because we don't we don't use that idiom, but that's the idiom that they use. Another example is uh, break bread. We're going to break bread. What am I saying? We're going to eat. Right? It's an idiom. It's it's just uh, it's just something that we say, and that's just how we say it. And you have to be from our culture to understand that. And and if we're in another culture, we have we have to have someone tell us what their different idioms mean so that we can um, under, understand them. So, uh, no, that was long. <laughs> Hopefully, that was helpful to you. Uh, I'm going to try to really briefen it up next time, but um, I just want to expose you guys to this, uh, some, some of these ideas, and, um, and, uh, and hopefully it's helpful to you. Uh, let's pray together, and we're going to um, sing a, a brief song of decision, and then we'll have a very, very brief uh, business meeting as well. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for tonight. Thank